environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship, and teaching. This, This is, is EcoCast. Hello and welcome to EcoCast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Gemma Deer. And I am Brandon Golm. So today's guest is Joni Adamson. Joni is President's Professor of Environmental Humanities and Director of the Environmental Humanities Initiative at the Julie Ann Wrigley Global Institute of Sustainability at Arizona State University. Previously, she has been an ASLI President and Founding Director of the American Studies Association's Environment and Culture Caucus. She has authored far too many influential publications to list them all here, so I will limit myself to just four that we hope to touch upon today. That's 2013's book, American Studies, Eco-Criticism and Citizenship, 2016's Keywords for Environmental Studies, 2017's Eco-Criticism and Indigenous Studies, Conversations from Earth to Cosmos, and 2017's Humanities for the Environment. So welcome, Joni, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. This, this, I, I have to uh, just say really quickly that this is a, an extra special treat for me because uh, you're the environmental justice reader was uh, pretty foundational in getting me into eco criticism and the environmental humanities. So this is a, a special joy for me to be be able to talk to you today. Oh, thank you. I cannot believe that that is the book that keeps on giving. <laughs> I cannot believe it's still in print. It still sells copies. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for reading it. And um, my thanks to the contributors to that book because they made it what it was. Yeah. So, Joni, you have been working in what we now call the environmental humanities for 20 years. Um, and you published one of the first collections on the topic Humanities for the Environment, Integrating Knowledge, Forging New Constellations of Practice. Um, so, can you tell us what first drew you to working into working in this field and how has it changed? How has it evolved since the early days? Um, well, I have to say that I came into the field like most people through some sort of environmental humanities field. Um, so whether that was eco-criticism or environmental history, environmental philosophy, um, and eco-feminism, we were all sort of looking at environmental uh, perspectives on our dis different disciplinary fields. But around 2000, with the publication of Kretzen and uh, Stormer's famous, you know, uh, short essay on the Anthropocene, humanists started sort of flooding into conferences together, sort of recognizing that we needed to come together with some sort of critical mass if we were going to have an influence ultimately on the planet. But my own sort of intervention was through eco-criticism, and I came into that field right at the moment of its formation, and I had grown up next to an indigenous um, nation, the Shoshone-Bannock Nation in Idaho, and so I had grown up aware of the different sort of unjust impacts on, pe on a people um, in a place, um, uh, I should say, on an indigenous people in a place, so that when I went to um, 
graduate school and I began studying eco-criticism, which in that moment was sort of focused on conservation, preservation of wilderness, I just immediately sort of had the sense that there was something missing. I was very, very fortunate in graduate school to be able to study with Joy Harjo, who's now the poet laureate of the United States. Uh, she's a Creek poet, uh, Simon Ortiz, or, um, you know, Akama, very famous Akama um, author. Um, and, you know, through a seminar, a really unique seminar called Poetics and Politics with Leslie Marmon Silko. So I went on to be a kind of Leslie Marmon Silko scholar and just through a sense, uh, a sort of a series of serendipitous events, I came literally sort of into the environmental justice activist um, community on the U.S.-Mexico border and began working with Teresa Leal, who's a very, very beloved and um, active Opatamayo uh, indigenous Latina woman who had huge influence, you know, on the on the environmental justice uh, movement. And so my intervention was really to say, we have to look at all these sort of in- environmental injustices that occurred before we even started talking about um, conservation of wilderness. So that included colonization, imperialism, imperialism um, and the genocide of indigenous people. And so, you know, fast forward to the 90s and early 2000s, um, and the movement among indigenous nations uh, to, to really themselves make an impactful intervention in both American studies and in the environmental fields. And suddenly, you know, all of the humanists coming together into a sort of critical mass that we're now calling the environmental humanities made a lot of sense because we needed to sort of scale up our impact. And I think that as a, as a sort of combined field, that's exactly what we're doing. That's, that's uh, fascinating. Thank you. Um, so I, I think building off of, of, you know, kind of, kind of your long history and, and relationship with, with the environmental humanities, um, could you talk a little bit about, you know, the four books that you're, you're, um, that Gemma mentioned in the intro that you, that you're here to discuss today and how, um, you know, they, they represent your work and thinking in this field in some ways. Well, so when I started going to the American Studies Association meetings in the late um, 90s as a graduate student, I was just incredibly struck that this field that had sort of given Leo Marx his platform had absolutely no environmental presentations in the late 90s. There were no environmental presentations on the program at American Studies, even though we'd had, you know, Leo Marx and F.O. Mathiasen and so many um, influential writers about Emerson, Whitman, and Thoreau had had a platform in that um, organization. And, and, and yet, at the end of the 90s, there were almost no, really, there were no environmental uh, presentations. So a group of us who were there to uh, present in eco-criticism, we were mostly eco-critics at that time, came together to form the Envir- Environment and Culture Caucus. And I'm so happy to say that over the course of the last about 20 years, well, now I think it's maybe 21 years now, this is a vibrant, ongoing, really graduate student-led uh, caucus 
in American Studies. And today there are so many environmental presentations at the American Studies Association that you can't even count them. And they're not all sort of um, necessarily connected to um, the Environment and Culture Caucus. Now, you know, um, they're connected pretty much throughout all of the caucuses because there's so much awareness of climate change and there's so much awareness of the connections between mm. um, environmental injustices, racism, and um, in- environmental uh, impacts, pollution, and um, you know extinction rates. So when I came into the field, I just was so aware that there was some sort of reason why there hadn't been a why there had been a movement from this this environmental focus in the past to one in which um, there was almost no uh, focus. And I discovered that, you know, uh, with the rise of ethnic studies, there had been a kind of pushback against the nationalism of the 60s and 70s and 80s in the field. So that was a good pushback. Ethnic studies gave American studies the, the right pushback and, and, a, and, a, and a very p- productive pushback. But what that sort of pushback left out was that earlier in the field, many anthropologists had really used American studies to foreground uh, liberation theology and the declarations and manifestos that were, were being written and, um, you know, organized, the movements that were being organized from South America to Mexico into the United States around um, in environmental justice. So that piece of the history had been left out. So, so the, the collection, American Studies, Ecocriticism, Citizenship, puts that piece back in and um, sort of traces American Studies all the way back to those, um, those uh, Latin American and South American um, interventions uh, that were that would sort of eventually sort of um, manifest in the Zapatista rebellion um, in the 1990s um, against NAFTA. So we tried to put all of that uh, history together with the environmental justice movement and to look at the ways in which citizenship can be both a leverage point for civil rights and human rights and rights for nature but it can also be a nationalistic um, impediment to those very things. And so we put the notion of citizenship right, citizenship into the context of what um, indigenous people are calling cosmopolitics. And cosmopolitics includes the rights to nature movement as well as um, civil rights and human rights for indigenous peoples and people, you know, mi- minority or uh, underrepresented peoples around the world. Okay. And so building off of that, you just mentioned this notion of cosmopolitics, which um, brings to mind your edited collection, um, Ecocriticism and Indigenous Studies, which has this wonderful subtitle, Conversations from Earth to Cosmos. Um, I wonder if you can expand a little bit on that formulation um, and how the book really enacts it. Well, I want to give a, a shout out to my amazing co-editor, Salma Monani. Um, this book wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Salma Monani. Um, in 2009, when I was, you know, a, a, a kind of new ASLI member, just, you know, sort of first generation ASLI member, I felt like in the early days, there was a lot of pushback 
against environmental justice, you know, like environmental justice activists, they, they're not respecting, you know, the, the hard work of the conservation preservationists, you know, and the wilderness um, activists in the, in the organization. And I always had this sort of heavy sense that, you know, there was this sort of pushback against those of us that were sort of, we need to go in the direction of environmental justice until 2009 when Salman Monani came up to me and said, I read the environmental justice reader and I want to work with you. <laughs> and so this was the book that we finally got to do together. And um, it focuses on um, eco-criticism and indigenous studies. And it focuses on both of our work around um, cosmopolitics and cosmovisions. So if you um, trace the environmental justice movement back to these um, movements in both Africa and in South America, in, in Mexico, all the way, you know, back to the early days of the UN, you'll find that indigenous nations, again, all the way around the world from, from South America to Africa to, um, you know, the, the, the Pacific, they, there were always um, leaders from indigenous nations at the UN meetings trying to say, our rights are being um, impacted and, you know, please recognize that we are nations and that our treaty rights have often been broken. So we wanted to look at that and we wanted to look at the ways in which the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples specifically mentions the word cosmovisions. We wanted to sort of understand what cosmovisions means. And essentially, and this is just really, really sort of oversimplifying and putting it in a nutshell, essentially what a cosmovision is, is an oral tradition. And we find these oral traditions um, embedded in modern novels and poems uh, by indigenous artists and um, activists and writers. These compact mnemonic stories, maybe they're about coyote, maybe they're about raven, or maybe they're about elder brother. They are these compact stories that essentially embody complex ecological knowledge. So the story might be about um, seven sisters that were chased by a bear up into the sky, and this is how we can explain the sort of backstory of this constellation. And this constellation governs the, the agricultural cycle around the year and the ecological cycles around the year. So every moon, you know, you can look up in the sky and you can see the seven sisters, you can think about the bear, um, and it governs the, the um, agricultural uh, uh, annual cycle. And thus, you know, each one of these little stories embedded in modern and contemporary film, novels, etc., is this compact ecological knowledge. Um, and so what we wanted to show with that book is the way in which these quote-unquote myths are not to be understood as, as not true. They are to be understood as indigenous scientific literacies and indigenous scientific knowledges, sort of diff diverse ontologies and um, cultures um, that have access to knowledge that we need today if we want to make an, a, a true intervention in what's going on with our planet. Uh, one of the other uh, ideas that you've kind of put forward is this notion of ecological citizenship. Can you uh, talk a little bit more about what that is and uh, what it means to embody uh, being an ecological citizen? 
So, um, so essentially everything I just said is what we are pointing towards as ecological citizenship. So citizenship itself is, is pretty much bound up into the laws of a nation state or uh, a municipality and therefore completely dependent on that place or nation's definition of right and just justice. And we know that through time, justice isn't always necessarily what we would consider justice now. So justice has been in many places and times uh, relative. So the laws of a place, the laws of a nation can be um, productive leverage points for certain um, people who are working as a movement to make change. But at the same time, um, as we know, looking at Brazil or, you know, other other places, even the United States, uh, where it isn't always the case that, well, Black Lives Matter, it isn't always the case that our laws are just. Um, Cosmopolitics wants to put um, the notion of human rights and rights for nature into this bigger uh, sort of cosmological perspective that includes Earth's relationship to the cosmos, humans' relationship to other um, non-humans, and all of our relationship to biogeochemical processes that keep our, um, our biosphere functioning. And so it's a relational notion of citizenship. It's a citizenship in relationship to all the things that have to be sort of working together to make a place healthy and to um, promote um, health between humans and non-humans. Mm. Yeah, and so I want to move on a little bit to um, the book Keywords for Environmental Studies. Um and so in this collection, you you wrote the entry for humanities. And I mean, perhaps this links into what you were just saying about citizenship. But what do you see the, the role of the humanities being in the current environmental crisis? Um, and I wonder as well whether, I mean, obviously, uh, we are all in the humanities. I'm in the humanities. It It can sometimes feel as though we're kind of, I don't know, writing about stuff but not really changing stuff. And I wonder whether you ever get that feeling or, or how you kind of combat it or work against it. Yes. So Humanities for the Environment, the collection from Rutledge, is a book that literally sort of answers that question that you just asked about, so what are we doing? And to, to, to start out with your question about the keywords book and the keyword humanities, and then to move to humanities for the environment and what we were trying to convey with that collection. First of all, in keywords, we wanted to put humanities in the keywords for environmental studies. So as we know, humanities has not been at the table in these large-scale conversations around climate change and, you know, our, um, you know, like the IPCC conversations around climate change, humanities has not been at the table. So if you look at the um, composition of some of the first IPCC committees, it was something like 
mostly science, scientists and maybe two humanists. That has changed over time in part because um, as we move forward in these discussions about the milestones we need to hit by 2030 and by 2050, we know that all of the data that has been collected proving that climate change is not a belief, but it is a scientific uh, fact and based on scientific facts, all of that data has not been convincing to um, enough people around the world. And so at least since 2012, with the Future We Want um, Sustainability Conference in Rio de Janeiro, which was 20 years after the first sustainability conference in Rio de Janeiro, we have known that the arts and the humanities have to be central. The arts and the humanities have to be central because storytelling, narrative, and recognition of our emotions, our psychology, human psychology, human behaviors and choices has to be central to everything we're saying about the data because we can have all the data, but if, if we're not telling the story in a convincing way, um, then we won't have um, significant uh, behavioral change. So in the humanities keyword, we were doing something just sort of fundamental. We were putting humanities at the center of the keywords, the most important keywords for environmental studies. So if biosphere is important, then, um, and, and if, um, you know, environment is important, um, if um, ecological politics is important, we also wanted to put culture and humanities into that conversation. We wanted, we wanted to sort of be really, really, um, you know, explicit that human imagination, human motivations, human behaviors, human desires, human senses are really, really at the center of this thing we're calling the Anthropocene. And so they had to be accounted for. So we've made huge progress um, since uh, 2012. The Humanities for the Environment Global Network of Observatories that I am um, working with and have helped to organize um, has recently become a co-founder of the United Nations UNESCO most um, program called Bridges and what Bridges will be doing at UNESCO and within the context of the United Nations is bringing the humanities centrally into the sustainability sciences. So Bridges is a humanities-led sustainability coalition. It's now central to the work of the UN and UNESCO. And so we've had a huge impact, I would say, I would argue, because so many scientists, so many social scientists working on these issues now recognize and welcome us to the table. So we're looking to hopefully make a really huge um, impact in, in that direction. And the Humanities for the Environment book brings together people working in the uh, Humanities for the Environment Global Network and sort of talks about uh, the kind of regional projects that we're doing around the world to be the, you know, to, to use that Mahatma Gandhi um, he didn't really say this. He didn't really say, be the change you want to see. But, you know, everybody thinks he did. So I'll, I'll use it now. We want to be the change we want to see. And right now, with both the Humanities for the Environment Global Network and described in that book and the Bridges Program, we are, we are actively being the change we want to see. 
That's awesome. So you just met, and you, you may have kind of already hit on it a little bit, but you mentioned um, while you were just talking there about those uh, environment observatories. Could you talk a little bit more about that initiative and, and what kind of work people are doing at those observatories? Yeah. Um, so, so that idea came together in 2013 when the um, Consortium for Humanities Institutes and Centers, the CHCI, got a fairly sizable uh, Andrew Mellon grant um, to distribute for innovative ideas. Our idea was to establish a, uh, you know, a network of what we called observatories around the world. It would, uh, and an observatory is not a physical hard space. It's rather this. Um, network that we created through uh, a website. So the website's called Humanities for the Environment. And what we did is we organized regional hubs or observatories. Um, And the reason why we called them observatories is we wanted to sort of imagine what would a humanities laboratory look like? You know, what would a humanities laboratory do? Who would you sort of run into at a humanities laboratory? So we called it an observatory because we're not really sort of a science lab. But, as, but what, what, what we wanted to do is convene um, people from across the disciplines to work together. So over the years, you know, we've had really, really well-recognized um, climate scientists like Mike Hume uh, work, working with our observatories um, on projects like humanities in the Anthropocene. So uh, that's one of our projects. But our idea was that at each one of these observatories, um, and they include the South American Observatory, the African Observatory, the Asia Pacific Observatory, um, the Australia Pacific Observatory, what we would do is um, we would innovate and model projects that we hoped would scale up around to other um, communities in the world. So, for example, in, in, at my uh, observatory, the North American Observatory, we've done this project called uh, Dinner 2040, and we're imagining what the food system in 25, say, 30 years is going to look like and what are the milestones we'll have to meet to get there. And if you look on our website, we've, we've shown you how we did the project. We put all of the sort of methodologies and practices um, that we used for the project on the website so that if another uni- uh, another uh, region somewhere else in the world can look at the um, observ- uh, look at the project on our website and say hey we could do that in our um, in our region in our place too and essentially it's just how do you bring stakeholders together and how do you engage in knowledge exchange so we don't want to ever convey the idea that acad- academia possesses some sort of, you know, superior knowledge. No, rather, we are really interested in knowledge exchange because we know that in any one given place, there are all kinds of elders, people that have lived there for, you know, for, for decades or generations. And what we need to do is we need to exchange information um, and have, have a knowledge exchange. So we can learn from local people. Hopefully we're bringing something to the table and we're all sort of engaging in this kind of practical application of humanity's strengths, including storytelling, narrative, um, you know, information about affect, behavior, motivation, desires, you know, everything we know from 
reading literature, everything we know from watching films, uh, you know, about human emotions and uh, behaviors. And we just bring this all together to innovate, hopefully, you know, projects that will scale up. And so, again, we became a co-founder of the Bridges Program at UNESCO. So what we're looking to do now is really scale up our, our impact and our activities around the world. Well, that sounds amazing. And we'll obviously put the info for the observatories in the show notes so that our mm -hmm. listeners can, can check out what sounds like a really wonderful initiative. That's um, great. Thank you. Of course. And I want to circle back a little bit to, to keywords. So your keywords for environmental studies um, obviously kind of builds on or signals back to um, Raymond Williams' famous 1976 book, Keywords, A Vocabulary of Culture and Society. And so Williams left blank pages for new entries at the end of his keywords. And it's only been five years since Keywords for Environmental Studies has been published, but it's actually been a pretty transformative <laughs> five years. So I just wonder whether there are any new words that you would add to the book already? Um, we tried to put in words that we saw sort of, quote-unquote, coming online, if you will. Uh, so biosemiotics was one of those words that we saw coming online. And biosemiotics is the you know languages of biology. And, and now we're just seeing so much um, acknowledgement and work around the field of biosemiotics. Uh, so Timo Moran wrote that um, entry. And, uh, you know, Richard Powers, the overstory in which he talks about the languages of trees is maybe one great example of this field that's sort of coming, emerging uh, to help us uh, articulate human relationship to, to non-humans and understand other languages, um, not just of whales and dolphins, but even of trees. So biosemiotics was one of those sort of new keywords. Um, but the other keyword that we're, as a, as a global network that we're working on right now, is the concept of syndemic. So the concept of syndemic is the, the notion that there are synchronous epidemics going on at the same time, in part because of linked activities. And if you look at the connections and the links, you can see why there are these linked epidemics, which the Lancet report has referred to as syndemic or synchronous um, pandemics or epidemics. And um, the year 2020 obviously made this keyword, uh, which we're seeing in medical journals, but also in environmental humanities contexts, um, much more sort of impactful because we could see with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, we could see with the response to um, the murder of George Floyd, we could see in the response of Black mothers uh, hearing, you know, Floyd's words, I can't breathe, and calling out for his mom. Um, so, you know, systemic racism, police violence, but then these longer histories of food insecurities caused by, exacerbated by um, racism in the country from, you know, the, um, the, the way in which indigenous nations have been treated, the ways in which their food systems have left them food insecure 
and um, without access to electricity and water. So the coronavirus impacting um, those those communities much at a much higher rate. In other words, their risk rates were much higher than um, other populations. And so I would say that if I was re-releasing the keywords book, syndemic might be one of these new keywords. So yes, uh, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. I I do think that new keywords come come to our attention on a regular basis. And uh, Raymond Williams was brilliant uh, to leave those blank pages. Um, keywords for environmental studies wants to be some of those keywords um, on those blank pages. And syndemic might be a new one that we would add to the to the collection now. Nice. Um, so we're getting, getting towards the end of things, but before we get to the end on a roll, um, I think we'd love to hear about you know what you're currently working on. What do you have in the works? Any any projects, books, stuff like that? Yeah, I believe that field building is a very time and labor intensive activity, and sometimes um, you know in a field that values the monograph and only the monograph. <laughs> sometimes um, you know you can get distracted, and so. Well, you could call it distraction or you could call it field building. So I like to call it field building. And I see all of these collections as field building and field genealogy corrections. Hmm. So I saw a correction that needed to be made to the American Studies field uh, genealogy. I saw an intervention that needed to be made in our um, among, you know, among our eco-critical um, colleagues, um, a sort of... Um, redirection towards environmental justice, you know, that still, that still took into account how important it is to preserve and conserve um, the environment. And I saw that the environmental humanities was this field that was emerging fast, but that we needed to make some interventions as well. Would this be a field that just uh, worked towards publication or would this be a field that did these kind of, um, hopefully innovative, community-embedded, public-facing projects that could literally contribute um, at the level of UNESCO and, you know, communities around the world to the way in which we are going to transition to um, new ways of being and new ways of thinking. So even if you just think about energy transition, you know, right now most of us are on a grid that is an overarching, you know, grid and system but the systems of the future, if they're going to be ecological, will probably, probably be smaller systems. They'll probably be, you know, on batteries, and they'll probably be governed by smaller communities, and they'll probably be distributed at many more points around the world than our current system, which is really focused, you know, on these, these grids that are run by states or nations. Um, but how will, the, how, will we how will we get the communities ready? to be in charge of their own um, small grid, you know, um, small, more ecological grid. Um, and so humanities really need to be there. We need to be, you know, working in, in these, these situations uh, with community. And so right now the work that I'm doing as I'm finally writing that monograph, <laughs> and it's going to be called, uh, well, at least the tentative title right now is going to be Global Syndemic, Cosmovisions, and the Environmental Humanities. So I'd like to talk about in this new monograph, I'd like to sort of bring together a lot of the kind of themes that I've been working on 
um, as I've been field building, bring them together into one uh, collection. And hopefully, you know, that's going to be the work of, of the next year. Awesome. Wow, Thank that, you. Yeah, that sounds like it's going to be a wonderful work. We will look out for it. Um, Thank you. And we could continue the conversation for much, much longer, but we are out of time. So I think Brandon is going to roll a dice for us. Yeah, I'm going to do it digitally today because I'm on campus recording and I don't have an actual die with me. So I'll, I'll insert maybe a, a, a clicking sound effect of the die um, <laughs> in, in post-production here. But uh, yeah, so we're going to go with... Actually, this is a really fitting one. So it's, uh, it's, it's a number, number nine on our list. So if you could only recommend one thing to someone starting out in the environmental humanities, what would that be? So that could be a book, an author, some, just some advice, um, you know, anything that you would give to someone just starting out in the environmental humanities. I would say look for a program that emphasizes interdisciplinarity that possibly has you know, uh, an innovative lab kind of situation. Here at Arizona State, we have what we call the Humanities Lab. It grows out of the um, Humanities for the Environment Observatory concept. And what we do is we bring um, faculty who are not from the same field, so one humanist and one non-humanist, a scientist or an economist, together to teach in a way that gives students access to these sort of broader interdisciplinary perspectives on a global challenge. So I would say look for a program that's doing some innovative work like that and um, consider that you would be publishing in new ways, maybe a podcast. (laughs) Um, So I'm seeing my graduate students work on things like um, making their dissertation in the form of podcasting. And it's really exciting. It will potentially reach a much larger audience. That's what we need as we try to meet our uh, Agenda 2030 goals at the UN uh, for sort of turning things around enough so that we can hit our targets by 2050 and ensure that our kids and grandkids have a habitable planet and that we're taking care of all the other amazing species that live here with us. Thank you. I love that answer. (laughs) Yeah, wonderful. And speaking Uh, of... Speaking of uh, reaching a wider audience, how can our listeners find out more about you or your work? Well, you can uh, come on to the Humanities for the Environment website, but also pretty much all of my work is on academia.edu. And if you do a quick search on the internet, you can find different lectures and some work I've done at the National Humanities Center. So... um, yeah, you find me online. I'm out there. <laughs> awesome. And obviously, again, links to all that stuff will be uh, on the show notes for the episode when it drops. So um, great. Thank you. And thanks again for, for joining us. This has been just an absolute uh, pleasure and treat. So, Well, thank you. The pleasure has been mine. I really, really um, loved getting the invitation and having a talk with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. 
thank you all for listening. Um, as always, if you have an idea for an episode, whether you yourself want to come and talk on uh, about your work or you have someone that you would like for us to reach out to and have on the show, you can uh, find us on Twitter at Asley underscore EcoCast. There's a link tree in there that has the link to our submission and proposal page. You can also email us at asley.ecocast at gmail.com. And if you have enjoyed the show, you can help us to reach a bigger audience by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.